according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. Picking up our study where we were Sunday morning, looking at prayer. We're commanded to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we have four different words for prayer right here in the same verse. And so we were introducing the vocabulary and discussing a little bit of the syntax as it relates to what links these uh, terms together. And uh, I want to kind of pick up where we left off there and then move on to some general principles of prayer that we find when you take all of these passages of the New Testament and you synthesize them together into an overall study. So we'll take tonight to, uh, to get started on that. Before we do get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble. Father, we have a freedom in this land to uh, meet together as a body of believers and we're here without fear of our government shutting us down or taking us to prison. We're here without fear, Father, of uh, attacks and violence. And yet we recognize that even in this land of freedom there's a growing darkness and there's a growing hostility and there are more acts of violence now happening within uh, church services. So we do uh, call upon your faithfulness to protect us, to watch over us, to uh, provide for the Word of God to go forth tonight. And uh, just thank you for all of the ways you show your faithfulness each and every day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take a few moments, though, for questions and answers before we get started. The microphone's ready to go. So uh, I was not here last week. Robert, I don't think you took questions and answers last week. So if, right. So um, we can take some time tonight. If uh, we have any questions, anything at all, we'd be glad to, uh, to go to the Scriptures and see, see if these things are so. Maybe? All right, Bill, you get our lead-off question. Actually, this is a two-question uh, two real quick. Okay. Um, in Genesis, when um, the angels had came to Lot to get them out of the city, I know it was mentioned about uh, his son-in-laws who were to be married to his daughters. Mm -hmm. And I found that kind of interesting that they were referred to as his son-in-law, yet they weren't married yet. And I'm sure I've probably asked this question before and just forgot the answer. What's the significance of that um, title or that name to where they're betrothed, but yet they're not married, but there still seems to be a responsibility of a husband to a wife? Right, right. Yeah, that's common. Actually, that was a feature in the ancient world. It's just it's we're the weird ones that differentiate between an engagement and a marriage. Uh, in 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 that sense, remember when uh, when when the Virgin Mary got pregnant, and then Joseph they weren't married yet, but Joseph still began divorce proceedings in order to kind of discreetly, privately, secretly kind of put a divorce to that. And so, really, the customs and practices in the ancient world were such that once the agreement was reached, typically between the parents of the the young man and the young woman. But once the agreement was reached and once they were officially betrothed, however long that betrothal period was, was still considered legally bound. And so 
Uh, so to break an engagement, nowadays you can just break an engagement and say, you know, forget it, I changed my mind, you know, here's your ring back, or not, I'm keeping it, or whatever. Um, but back then, uh, to be engaged was, was, was binding, because uh, the, the parties had already exchanged the, the, uh, the bride's gifts and things like that. So that's the, that's the answer. That's why they were called sons-in-law, even though they were still virgin daughters and had not yet been given to them in marriage. And the second question real quick, when Abraham, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac and they were saying that we'll be back, you always, I remember you had saying that that had a connection to Hebrews. And I was wondering what that scripture in Hebrew was that kind of correlated with uh, Abraham and Isaac. In and, the book of Hebrews? Yes. Sorry. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, in the, the Hall of Fame chapter there, it talks about Abraham's faith and sacrificing his son and receiving him back as a type, considering that God is able to, to raise even the dead. Yeah, that's Hebrews chapter 11 that addresses that. Thank you. Uh You're welcome. All right, we'll come here to uh, the front row, and then the back row, and then the middle row. All right. We were talking a couple of weeks ago about Ezekiel's temple, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned again something I've heard about before, but I've never managed to find for myself, the secret room with no doors. Where does that actually appear? Oh, that's great. Uh, somewhere between chapter 40 and 48 of, of the book of Ezekiel, there is... Um, so in the, um, in the tabernacle, as you, as you made your way from you know, east to west, you came in through the outer gate, uh, past the bronze altar, past the laver, into the holy place, from the holy place into the holy of holies, if you were the high priest, okay, and one day a year. You could go into that holy of holies, and the same same layout in the tabernacle, same layout in the temple. Well, in uh, Ezekiel's temple, there is something beyond the holy of holies, and it's called a western building. And I think um, if I can find it, where is that? It's like a separate building, separate area. Here we go, forty-one twelve. Ezekiel forty-one twelve. So, uh, so it talks about the outer chambers and the side chambers, the doorways of the side chambers, toward the free space and and things there, and then the building that was in front of the separate area. What's that? Because that wasn't in the tabernacle. It wasn't in Solomon's temple. Uh, the building that was in front of the separate area at the side toward the west. So that's beyond the holy of holies as you work your way through there. It was 70 cubits wide. The wall of the building was five cubits thick all around. Its length was 90 cubits. And then we move on past that in verses 13 and following to some other dimensions. So we really have that one verse there. And there's no mention in that verse about doors or windows or anything. It's just a square building with five foot thick walls. And what's inside that building? And who gets into that building? And why is it there? And we have more questions than answers because that's all there is, all there is to it, is that verse 41, right there. 12. Yeah, I'm sorry? 41.12? yes. Ezekiel 41.12. All right, back row then. Hey, this is in First uh, Corinthians 6, specifically uh, verse 2 and 3. Uh-huh. It talks about saints, uh, don't you know we'll judge the world and then we'll also judge angels. A couple questions on this. When it says judge the world, um, what does that all entail? 
everything in there that we'll be a part of as far as judgment. Because I know the apostles will be judging the tribes. It talks about they'll judge the tribes, right? The, apostles the 12 will. apostles of the Lamb will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Correct. we won't be part of that, you don't think, as the bride of Christ, or would we? I don't believe so. I think that's a, that's a prerogative of the apostles of the Lamb, and that's their uh, reward for the fruit that they bore in Israel's stewardship before the church age even began. Gotcha. So they have Israel rewards as well as church rewards. Right, okay, gotcha. First Corinthians 6 is talking about church rewards. And so in terms of judging the world, uh, there's the resurrection judgments of Revelation chapter 20, and then there's the, all the judgment that will take place for the thousand generations of the fullness of time. Got you. And then for the judging the angels. Now, here's kind of the other question. When it says judge the angels, do you think that's only the fallen? Or are we also going to be judging the productivity and rewards for the elect as well? Uh, I think it's both. Yeah, yeah. I think it, doesn't, it's, it just says judge the angels, and it's not really distinguishing between elect or fallen at that point. So. I got you. Yeah. Do you think now as well, though, the angels also, because, I mean, they still have volition, it seems, that there is productivity. There's maybe some, like we, 30, 60, 100. Maybe they don't sin necessarily, but there's some that have more reward than not. Or would this all be judging stuff before the fall? That's my suspicion, yeah. I think they're already, they're already locked into their angelity future. Mm-hmm. So they've had their past. They've had their... Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think Gabriel's doing more... I mean, he's working hard, but he's yeah. working hard in his glorified state. And, and when, we, when we tend to think about judgments and rewards, that's when we're at the boundary between time and eternity. And we get, it's given unto man once to die and after that the judgment. So gotcha. the whole course of our mortal life is evaluated and the fruit is, is purified, the reward is assigned. And so with that as a pattern, right. using that as an analogy, I think it's, I can't imagine ongoing rewards for the angels in, in, in their present service towards the church. Okay, so not really rewardable what they're doing now. That's right. just where they're at, and that's their position. Okay. But I'm, I'm, you know, I could be wrong. We'll find out when we get there. But, right. <laughs> you know, just based on one verse like that, it's kind of hard to read a whole lot into it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, and then three rows up. There we go. Can you please explain how Christ is our mercy seat? Yes, Christ is our mercy seat. That's a great question, because I say that repeatedly, don't I? So Jesus Christ, who is our mercy seat, you know, uh, he, because he is the propitiation. And so when I go to 1 John 2, 2, and uh, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And there's a footnote there uh, next to the word propitiation. And the footnote says, or satisfaction that helps to give a, another meaning for propitiation. Uh, the actual word here is hilasmos. And so when you pull up hilasmos as a word study, let me pop it out here too because that's going to be too small. Let's do, where is it? F11. All right. Hilasmos as the word study. And uh, it's only used twice in the New Testament. So 1 John 2.2 2 and 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the hilasmos for our sins. But there's also five, um, there's also five Septuagint translations. And uh, it's in here that it goes back to the mercy seat and where the blood gets, got spread on the Day of Atonement. And so it comes down to how hilasmos is used in the Septuagint as hilasmos is related to mercy seat 
in, uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament. Does that make sense? It's, it's a blood thing, yes. But where, because the, the blood in the Old Testament was smeared on the mercy seat, right? Which was the lid, basically, sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then, so that was the, that was the, um, the place where the blood was, was, uh, was shed. I'll get some verses for you for next week and we'll get that ready to go. So it's not so much because the mercy seat, the physical mercy seat, it's more because of the blood was spread on it during it on, on Day of Atonement. Right, and because it, it was representative of Christ and then he fulfilled that when he died on the cross and, and paid for our sins. So he is our mercy seat because he is our propitiation. It's the place of propitiation as well as the fact or the act of propitiation. And I, I understand propitiation and, and Christ. I, mm-hmm. I guess the mercy seat part of it is what was telling me because I didn't understand how that connected with, I didn't understand the connection. Because right. the mercy seat to me was always sort of just a a thing they called the lid, you know, a thing. Yeah, well, it was it was on top of the lid or it was molded into the lid because there were also two cherubim that had wings right. that stretched out over top of the mercy seat. Right. Okay, so so explain mercy seat other than just this decorative thing. Other like, than what? Then being decorative, I guess. Because that's where the blood got spread. The blood got anointed, okay, so got spread on the on the mercy okay, seat. Okay. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's a great, great question. Appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, if I did not get to yours, we're out of time. If I did not get to yours, then uh, raise your hand faster next week. And if you can't wait a whole week, then uh, shoot me an email in the meantime, and uh, and we'll get to it. So. For tonight, though, let's return to where we were on Sunday, Philippians chapter 4, and we have the, the, uh, the nothing and everything contrast. You realize you can say the same thing two different ways, and you're saying the same thing, uh, which is what Paul's doing here when he says, be anxious for nothing. That's, the, that's one way of saying it. And then he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so these are absolute statements. These are twin absolute statements. And uh, uh, where did I put this down? In point five, I guess, in the outlines where I put that. Twin absolutes. These are the fourth and fifth imperatives. There's a total of seven imperatives here, uh, starting with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, going all the way down through verses eight and nine, where we're to mentally dwell on, on those things and we're to practice these things. So there's a total of seven imperatives in this in this section and uh, number four and five are put in this contrast where we have on the one hand nothing and on the other hand everything. And that nothing and that everything is really the same thing we're talking about because it's to be anxious for nothing and in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God. And so Sunday morning we took the time actually to work our way through, we had some subpoints on this, but we went through to talk about the four different terms that are used here in prayer. We also discussed how do you inform somebody who already knows everything? <laughs> you know, make your request known. So typically this is a verb that's used if you're talking to an ignorant person who doesn't know something, and then you make something known to them, and as soon as you make something known to them, now they know it, right? But they didn't know it until you made it known. And that's normally how this verb is used. In fact, 24 times out of the 25 times uh, when, this, when norizo is used in the New Testament, 
uh, typically there's, there's information being conveyed to, to somebody ignorant of that information. And so it's made known. Uh, this is unique in the sense that we have God who is omniscient, who knows everything. He knows what we need before we ask. He knows what our requests are and probably, and, and given the fact that He gives us the requests that we can ask of Him, uh, the idea that we make them known to God becomes powerful. You know, it's like the God who's, think about it this way, God is everywhere because He's omnipresent, right? But then God is within you particularly. And that's a very special place for where God resides, where He dwells, where He occupies, that's above and beyond the fact that He's omnipresent, that He's everywhere. Okay, Same thing with omniscience. God knows everything, but when you make your request known, now He knows this item in a very particular way, a very direct way, a very unique way. Because now He has that experiential knowledge whereby He has been informed, whereby his, the, the child who loves Him has made the request known. And so it's, um, it's really, I think it's a a marvelous blessing that He's given us in prayer to be able to speak to Him in this way. And not just assume that, uh, that well, He knows it already, why do I bother telling Him? Okay? It's, uh, you know, similar to the old joke about, uh, my dad used to use it a lot about, well, you know, I don't have to tell her I love you all that often. I told her once and, you know, if, if anything changes I'll let her know. But, you know, you just assume, <laughs> you know, you told her once, it should, that should still be good, right? No, you tell her again and again and again and again. And so you don't just assume that, well, God knows it anyway. Why do I bother telling Him? He knows it anyway. Well, no, because He wants you to tell Him. That's part of the loving relationship, the parental relationship that's based upon communication. So He wants to hear from His children. And He wants to provide for His children in response to that communication. So this is the only place where Narizo is used for a human being conveying requests to the all-knowing, all-wise God. Then on Sunday we looked at these four prayer terms, and if you put them all together, you've got almost 300 places to look at in the New Testament. 289 uses of these, of these eight terms uh, in 256 verses of the New Testament. And so we really we have four nouns that are used here in this paragraph. Each one has a cognate verb that goes with it. So uh, we talked about prosuke, and, and I'll just run through these real quickly this evening, um, encouraging to go get that MP3 file that's just sitting there. But prosuke is number 4335, and there's, there's 37 of those in the New Testament. It comes from the verb prosukamai, uh, number 4336, and there's 86 of those in the New Testament. So this is the most common term. This is the, the normal word for prayer, the most frequent word for prayer. And it stresses the elements of worship and blessing. It stresses the elements of worship and blessing, that when we are praying, we are communing with the Creator God of the universe. We are, we are um, you know, in, in direct thought connection with the, uh, the supreme mind of the universe. And that's an amazing thing. It's uh, communing with God in our prayers, and it's, it's powerful. So it does stress worship, it does stress blessing, some of those elements that are built into prosukamai include the pros, which means before or in the face of, that I'm face-to-face with God. I'm just face-to-face with Him when I, when I open up that prayer channel and here we are. Okay, And of course, yukamai, the E-U uh, prefix, is the prefix of, of goodness or wellness or well-being. And, uh, and it's prosukamai in the middle voice, that not only am I actively praying, but I'm also passively uh, engaged in the action of the prayer 
uh, as well. So anyway, prosukama is a marvelous term, and we have it here uh, in, uh, throughout the New Testament, both as verbs and nouns. And we do the same thing in English, because what do we pray when we pray? We pray a prayer, you know? And so when we're done praying a prayer, then we can... Uh, you know, give thanks and give a thanksgiving and thanks. And we, we, we have these redundant expressions really everywhere. The word for supplication is deesis, D-E-E-S-I-S, deesis. That's the short E, epsilon, followed by the long E, eta, D-E-E-S-I-S. And it's, it's only used 18 times, so really a, a lot fewer than, than prosuke. And a lot of times when it is used, it's used in tandem with prosuke because we have prayers and supplications, prayers and petitions, prayers and entreaties. And uh, it tends to be a nice tandem article with, with uh, prayer itself, uh, although a lot of times it's, it's translated prayer. And so uh, we end up with, uh, with trouble if we have two words that both get translated prayer. And so we don't want to be redundant when we translate it to say, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayers and prayers, with with thanksgiving. So we don't want to do that. Since both words can be translated prayers, we go ahead and let prosuke be translated prayers, and then we do something different with with deesis. And uh, here in Philippians, we we render it supplications. But in Ephesians, it's rendered petitions. And in uh, Timothy, it's rendered entreaties. And so uh, that, I think, we, with an inconsistency in different English translations, uh, I think that confuses issues unnecessarily and uh, something that hopefully we can overcome if we stop being so dependent on English translations and just go back to the Greek every time. So uh, the noun is deesis, the verb is deamai, and it's a word for begging. It's a word for begging, and there's no shame in begging. Not when you're begging God. And not when God wants you to beg. And not when God begs through you in His, in his evangelism ministry. That uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we're begging uh, the unbelievers to be reconciled to God. And so to beg, to beseech, to implore, um, it's, they're just strong words for asking. Okay, and, and they tend to be asking with such a fervency and a recognition that we don't deserve a thing. We're just begging and we have no claim to anything. We have no entitlements. It's not like we're asking for something that we were entitled to. We're just begging. And we're begging our Father who wants us to make these requests known. And so I appreciate that. What Deamai and Deasis uh, stress is the deficiency or the need and the dependence upon God to provide. So the, the, the concept within the verb is one of a deficiency, of a lack, of a need. And so uh, we're just honest with our God and say, God, I've got this need. And you promised to supply all my need. So, you know, where else would I go? You're the one that's here to provide. And we, uh, we lay that there. It is interesting, though, if you turn over to Ephesians 6.18, we have the same tandem of, of terms and in the same order. After he goes item by item through the armor, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With all prosuke and deesis, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And so we realize that our prayer life is where we're on the alert. Our prayer life is where we have our spiritual eyes open for the, uh, for the, the, the attacks as they come in and for the other testing circumstances as they arise and for the speaking opportunities when they arise. Uh, as he says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. 
And, uh, you know, if you're waiting for something to happen and then you decide only then to start your prayer life, uh, that's late. That's too late. You should have been praying all along, praying in that spirit of alertness so that when the door opens, you're already in that prayer mode and you can just take it in stride and keep on going related to those things. Likewise, the widows of uh, 1 Timothy 5, 5. They have a blessing. If they're not going to be remarried, if uh, they're going to live as single widows for the rest of their days, then they've got this blessing to undertake a prayer ministry. And uh, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in, and here the word order is reversed, but they're the same two words, and they're plural, not singular, but uh, she has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. In deasis and prosuke, plural, night and day. And so that's a, a pretty nifty tandem. And then what I like about having those in tandem is we recognize the fact that they're paired together so frequently, we recognize that they're not synonyms, they're not pure synonyms. While they're both prayer applications, they're not identical. And so then we start to paint with a finer brush and find what the distinctions are. And we realize if our whole prayer life is nothing but asking for stuff, <laughs> if, if asking is the only thing we ever do in prayer, we're limiting ourselves. That prayer is more than just asking, 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 more than just gimme, 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 more than just I need, I need, I need, I need. All right? That's, that's available. Don't get me wrong. It's not wrong. But it comes second to the worship, to the prosuke, to where we are worshiping and blessed to be communing with God. So I think prayers and supplications are uh, really the, the neat application we have in terms of uh, what a Levitical priesthood context would call gifts and offerings. Okay, That when, when the priest is ministering, he's ministering gifts and offerings before the Father. Not everything the priest does is, is killing an animal, okay? because there's gifts and offerings that they, that they give to the Lord. All right, prayers and supplications. Now before we get to the third and to the fourth item, recognize there is a difference here. Let me return back to Philippians 4. And I forgot, I was going to try to do a sentence diagram for you and chart it out, but um, I failed to do that. So um, I guess what I can do is uh, manually draw something for you. I'm pretty sure I've had uh, several emails lately just filling my, filling my uh, inbox, begging for more illustrations from the pulpit that they, people are just loving my artwork. All right, prayer, supplication. Now there's two more on the way, but we start with those two. Because these are the two that start with the preposition by. As it says, uh, be anxious for nothing, uh, but in everything, by prayer and by supplication. And so both of these have by's connected. By and by. And so in the, in the dative case, uh, as we have it in the Greek New Testament, these are linked together as instruments. These are the instruments through which you can notify God of your requests. It's by prayer and by supplication. Those are the instruments in the, uh, 
Do I have it up here? I do not. I'll get it. Philippians 4, 6. And so, it's te prosuke. What color do you want? Green. And te de ese. Te and te. Okay? By prayer, by supplications. But then it's with. It's meta. We'll make that yellow. So it's by prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving. Te prosuke, te de ese, meta eucharistia. All right? So this is where the prepositions are helping us to link our things together. So it's by prayer, by supplication, these two things are happening simultaneously. And then what bridges them is with thanksgiving. That's the structure. By prayer, by supplication, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving connects them. Thanksgiving links them. Thanksgiving has to be the mental attitude in all of our prayer life. We are approaching the Father thankfully. If we don't approach the Father thankfully, we're off, you know, we're on the wrong foot with respect to our prayers. Okay? And that's, uh, you know, if you're dancing with a partner and they're on a different foot than you're on, they're probably on your foot. Right? So that's a problem. And in your prayer life, if you want to get your prayer life off to the right foot, it's got to start with that attitude of, of thanksgiving, of thankfulness. And that's why it's with thanksgiving. And then the imperative is let your requests be made known. And that's kind of, a, of an umbrella term that encompasses the whole, the whole process there is letting your requests be made known. All right, so that's what we're talking about there. All right, so we've got prayer, we've got supplication, we have thanksgiving. I would stress, of course, that essential to thanksgiving is grace. That if you lose sight of grace, you are not biblically thankful. You can be carnally thankful. You can be, I mean, there's all kinds of cosmic thankfulness out there that's separated from grace. But if you want to keep it biblical, all thanksgiving has to be a grace response. That chorus is the core of all thanksgiving. That's why I underlined there in the, uh, in the Greek text, the Eucharistia, uh, in, the, in the middle, nested within Eucharistia, is charis. It just has an EU prefix and it has the, the tia suffix on the end of it for the noun or the teo suffix on the end of it for the verb. Eucharisteo is the verb to be thankful. But whether it's the noun or the verb, charis is in the center of all thanksgiving. And that's what it is when you're giving thanks. It is a grace response to grace giving. And when you lose your thankfulness, when you lose your biblical thankfulness, you've lost focus on grace. And then you start to get resentful. Then you start to think that you deserve more. (laughs) And so you're not thankful for what He gave you because you're very unthankful because you think you deserve more than that. And so now you're unthankful or you're ungrateful um, and because you've lost sense of grace. That split second you go to what you've earned or deserved, you just left the whole universe of grace. Grace is not about what we've earned or deserved. It's about what God wants to give. His riches at Christ's expense, despite what we've earned, the lake of fire that we've earned or deserved. Um, in some respects, I like gratitude as the word better than thanksgiving as the word, because gratitude, gratis, gratuity, uh, all those things, if you're giving a tip to your waiter, that's a gratuity, and that comes from gratis, from grateful, from, from grace. And so... Um, Maybe those words are more helpful than the than the uh, the thank, 
terminology that we have. But the grace response to grace giving must be the attitudinal foundation for all prayer and supplication. And so you are, when you're going to the Father with a need, when you're going to the Father with a request, you haven't seen the answer yet, but you're thankful even for the fact of asking. You're thankful that, man, I've got a, I've got a Father who listens. I've got a Father who cares. I haven't seen the answer yet, but He planned it before the foundation of the world. So I'm thankful when I ask. And I'm thankful, you know, preemptively thankful for the answer that comes that may not be the answer I want. But whenever the answer comes, it's the answer He wants. It's the answer He's called for in His plan. You know, maybe the answer I want is for, uh, you know, a cancer to be healed. Maybe the answer He's providing is to take me home to glory, as the case may be. All right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be thankful ahead of time. You see why the world can't handle this? The world is going to take a wait and see approach and just, you know, we'll be thankful if it's what we want. <laughs> you know, we'll be thankful if we get what we wanted or we'll be thankful if we think it's good enough to be thankful for. Okay, And then they have a, a scale of thankfulness. They're going to be more thankful if it's really, really good. Okay, They'll be less thankful if it's not so good. But we're thankful for everything. Rejoice always and everything give thanks. And, and this is what we're called to do. Pray without ceasing. And so we don't, we don't gauge our thankfulness based upon, you know, what have you done for me lately? Or anything worldly as, as, as this fallen world would do. So uh, gratitude. It is the attitudinal foundation that uh, I would even stop and just do a do a, a, a reality check. And before I even start my prayer, before I even open up my dear Heavenly Father expression, uh, just stop and say, wait a minute, before I get started here, am I thankful? Am I thankful? And if not, then uh, I know the first thing I've got to start praying for. <laughs> say, Father, I'm supposed to be thankful in this prayer life and I'm struggling right now, so give me the thankfulness I'm supposed to have so I can continue in this prayer life the way you want me to, the way you want me to pray. And then finally, the, uh, the fourth term here is itema. Itema is a request. It's even a demand. When they were demanding for Pilate to be released, uh, Pilate, uh, demanding, I'm sorry, demanding for uh, Barabbas to be released. And Pilate was trying to release Jesus, and then people kept screaming, no, crucify him, crucify him. And uh, Pilate said, well, who do you want me to release for you then? And they demanded Barabbas. That was their request. That was their demand, as it's rendered in Luke 23-24. But it's, uh, it's a request in Philippians 4-6. It's also a request in 1 John 5-15. Okay? And these requests that we have, we have from Him. The best things to pray for are the requests He's given you. You know, when He puts it on your heart to ask for something, there's a reason why. So start asking for what He put on your heart to start asking for. That He gives you the request that He wants you to give back to Him. And that's, uh, that's a neat thing to do. All right. Now, if we're going to summarize all these things, what do we come up with? So subpoint E, an inductive survey of the New Testament usages of these four nouns and four verbs. So we've seen four nouns in our Philippians passage. Each one has a verb connected to it. So really we're looking at eight different terms, and there's 289 of them throughout the New Testament. How can we save some time and not look at all 289 of them? Well, we can boil it down to the concentrated usages. We can boil it down to the dominant passages where we have tremendous a tremendous summary of, uh, of, of these expressions. And so I might not hit your favorite prayer verse in this study. And if I don't, I'm sorry, okay? 
you can add it in yourself when you do this study, okay? I'm giving you the, the, uh, the overall dominant passages. Of course, there's, like I say, hundreds of additional passages. So we'll start with Jesus' teachings. Jesus taught a lot about prayer. And um, I've tried to give a, a sampling of, of a number of Gospels here. So we've got Matthew, we've got Luke and John. Um, there are teachings in Mark as well, but they're parallel to the ones that we are going to look at tonight in, in Matthew and in Luke. So um, we can save some time that way. But Jesus had a lot to say about prayer. And when you start to look at where these terms are found and where these eight different, these four verbs and four nouns are found and you find the concentrated usages of them, you find that they saturate particular passages, including, of course, Philippians that we're in tonight, but including several other passages throughout the New Testament. And when you have a saturation, that gets your attention. So starting in Matthew chapter 6, join me there, Matthew chapter 6. And just going through the Lord's teachings on prayer give you a sufficient outline whereby um, several, I think, several adjustments can get made for people to consider in uh, the things that they need to consider. So Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. All right. Now, like I say, I'm, I'm giving you a broad outline and some general principles. I'm not going into detail, but I think you can, you can fill in the blanks yourself. And you can jot it down yourself. And if you're going to teach this to your kids or your grandkids or your neighbor, um, what do you think verse 5 is talking about? <laughs> okay? Our prayer life is not a performance. We're not on display in our prayer life impressing people with our oratory. That's not why we're doing it. That's why the hypocrites do it. Why the Pharisees and scribes and those guys were doing it. You know, in fact, they loved it. They couldn't wait for the next chance to outdo the, the next guy, and it kind of becomes a competition at that point. And so to be seen by men, if that's your point, if you want to impress a human being with your prayer life, then uh, that's all the reward you're going to get. It says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. King James uses the word closet there, and that confuses people. <laughs> okay, Closet meant something different in Elizabethan English than, than we use it today. But going, In other words, don't make a public spectacle out of it. It's, it. You can have private prayers before the Lord, your Father sees in secret, He will repay. Go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's like the giving illustration of verses 1 through 4. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Your father sees in secret, he will repay. Same thing with your prayer life. Same thing with your fasting. The father who sees in secret will repay. None of these priestly functions of giving or prayer or fasting, none of these priestly functions are, are public performances to, uh, to uh, entertain human beings or to impress human beings. So your father who sees in secret uh, will reward you. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. So there's another principle that we learn. Prayer is not a magic formula. It's not an incantation. We're not supposed to just use the same formulaic words over and over again and expect that somehow it uh, has power over, over deity. Uh, they suppose they will be heard for their many words. You know, sometimes the shortest prayers are the best, 
like, Jesus, help. <laughs> okay? Because honestly, you're sinking in the water and you don't have time to, for the long flowery kind of prayer. Just get right to it. And then it goes on to say, do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then He says, pray then in this way. And we have what's often called the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. It's a beginning prayer. It's uh, a rough outline to, to follow if, uh, if uh, you're, you're new at this whole prayer thing. Okay, And it's been in the news this week too. Did you see that? Yeah, the Roman church is going to change the, the wording. The Pope announced it that they've been I guess they've had a commission studying this for some 11 years now and they've, they've finally decided they don't like uh, lead us not into temptation. So they're, they're rewording that in, uh, in different things. Alright. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name. We recognize that there's an adoration involved in our prayers. Remember prosukamai is blessing and worship. Hallowed be your name. You know, spend time in prayer just telling God how awesome He is. Because guess what? He's awesome. So tell Him. And appreciate. It's a grace appreciation. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Spend some time occupying with the plan of God, recognizing that the whole universe does not revolve around you. And uh, whatever that request is, you're going to get around to. By the end of your prayer, you get around to it. But for now, just start by adoring Him, worshiping Him, and occupying with His plan. That uh, we're still in the uh, intensified stage of the angelic conflict and he's still tolerating an awful lot of sin and wickedness in this world. And, uh, but a day is coming when he's going to send his son and call us out of here. And uh, oh, that it were today. Give us this day our daily bread. So we have a day-by-day walk, a day-by-day provision and we go, we're dependent upon him day-by-day. We're not worried about tomorrow. We'll handle that when we get to tomorrow. Each day has enough evil of its own. And so today, Father... Um, I'm dependent upon your provision. And forgive us our debts or transgressions, even as we have forgiven our debtors. We want to have the, the forgiving spirit towards others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's, uh, I think it's a marvelous translation. I don't have a problem with it. He won't do the tempting. God himself doesn't tempt anybody. But he will often lead us into realms where we do get tempted, and then we need him to deliver us out of those realms and, uh, and different things there. Alright, so here's uh, there's a pattern for prayer. And Jesus gave this, and His disciples actually wanted this. If you read the Luke parallel here, the, the disciples were coming to Him saying, um, you know, John the Baptist taught His disciples how to pray, can, can you teach us how to pray? Kind of a thing. And so He gives them this, this model prayer. Next chapter over in Matthew chapter 7. We have ask, seek, knock. And man, there's a lot of principles here too that we can glean. Ask and it will be given to you. And in that, that's, you know, we know how that gets abused. <laughs> we know the prosperity people just start naming and claiming it and think all you got to do is ask. You know, there's $426 million in the lottery. That should be mine because I keep asking for it. And uh, why, why does this verse not work? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Ask, seek, knock. Those are all prayer functions. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. And so this is what God does. But then he explains even more. What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? So if we're asking for something that we need, if we're asking for something legitimate like a loaf, 
He's not going to give us something harmful, something that's, that's not what we need. You know, a stone doesn't, uh, doesn't feed us like a loaf feeds us. Why would he do that? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Why would he give us something harmful? If we're asking for something in the will of God, he hears us, and we know that. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And so the analogy of human parents and human children is such, and we understand how parents want to provide for their children, how parents love their children, how parents uh, operate in the human realm, recognized by analogy, that's only a, a, a fraction of what our Father wants to do for us in heaven, as far as that goes. Jesus has more to say on prayer in chapter 26, Matthew 26. And uh, (laughs) Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and prosukamai. I go over there and, and pray. I'm going to be worshiping and blessed while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And so we recognize, okay, there's, an inner, there's a time for the inner room private prayers, but then there's a time for the public prayers, the garden prayers. There's a time to get brothers and sisters alongside. And he didn't take all 12 of the disciples, or all 11, I guess. Judas is already fetching the soldiers. But uh, he doesn't take all of them. He takes Peter, James, and John. He takes the three that are closest to him, the three that understand him the best, the three that he prays with the most, takes those guys. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Understand why in Philippians it says, the peace of God that surpasseth comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When, uh, when you're faced with this kind of testing, you need to be in prayer because that's where the, the peace of God will be supplied. And Jesus admits this, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Not that he's short on doctrine, you know, or that he's, uh, you know, he's got some spiritual immaturities and some blind spots there, um, which we all have, but he didn't, okay? He's not a weak sister, he's not, he, he just needs the encouragement of prayer. In his humanity, that's what it's about. So he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, that's Prasukamai again, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And so in your prayers, you may let your request be made known, but then you may also confess freely that the request you're making known is, is probably not what God wants. <laughs> Say, you know, uh, if, is it possible, Father? Okay, now I realize it's not. So not my will, but thine be done. And you leave it with the Father in prayer. They came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Remember, prayer is where we're on the alert. We saw that in Ephesians 6. When you have your armor on, prayer is when you're on the alert. And if you can't stay awake to pray, what are you doing? And especially when Jesus asks you to pray with him. And uh, that's not the time to catch catch a nap, okay? Jesus asked you to pray for him. So he said, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. One of the main reasons we want to stay in prayer so fervently is because because our testing can wear us down. And maybe we passed it yesterday, we passed it today, but tomorrow's another day, and at some point, you know, the the flesh is just going to lose it. We're going to 
break down. So keep, uh, this, keep that spirit before the Lord. Verse 42 says, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And I love that. I love that. I mean, it's, it's like, there's no options, Father. This is, the only, this is the only route. Okay? And with cosmic viewpoint, the unbeliever or the carnal believer, when he's faced with a dead end, when he's faced with, with hopelessness and no answers, then he just gets mad and gets in despair. And, and Jesus, though, just worships and hands it back to the Father and says, all right, this is, uh, this is it. There's no other options. And uh, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. So he prays and he keeps on praying and he keeps on praying and he's not going to let go until the answer comes. We have uh, patterns here for persistent prayer which is something that he taught and he taught it in Luke 18. Persistent prayer, pesky prayer, importunate prayer. There's other terms for it but it means sanctified nagging. Sanctified nagging, right? And it's not uh, the little kid in the back seat saying, are we there yet, are we there yet, are we there yet? It's, uh, it's, it's a child going to his father, or in the case of this uh, widow and the unrighteous judge, um, it's, a, it's a supplicant that's coming for justice and keeps asking and asking and asking and asking until the, uh, she wears the judge out. And when Jesus teaches this, we read through here and think, wow, that's, that's kind of inappropriate. But Jesus says, no, it's very appropriate. That's what I want you to do. That's what God wants you to do in your prayer life. So he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And um, I'm convinced, I think Scripture bears it out, that, that the reason why he delays certain responses is because we haven't worked our prayer muscles hard enough yet. You know, and it's like your, your workout coach that, uh, if you have one, your workout coach that doesn't let you stop after a certain number of reps because he knows that uh, you haven't done enough to, to advance beyond what you did last week. He said, you got to do more, you got to do more. And of course, in your laziness, you don't want to do more, you want to stop, right? That's why drill sergeants keep yelling at you, making you do more push-ups because they know you can do more and they don't want you to stop. And so... God can delay the answer so that we keep on praying. That we keep exercising our faith muscles and we keep coming to Him. So in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to Him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And, uh, of course, we know he's an unrighteous judge, and he's, uh, you know, the way the world works, probably he was delaying his ruling until he could figure out which side of this, uh, of this legal argument was going to line his pockets, you know, better than the other side. And then, you know, once the, once the campaign donations come in, then he can issue his, he can issue his judicial ruling. Um, but at a certain point, this nagging woman is just on his nerves, so he doesn't even care what the other person He's going to rule on behalf of this woman just to make her go away. Okay? And doesn't that sound terrible? I say, that's a horrible story. But Jesus uses it and says, pray like that. Okay? Because your father is not the unrighteous judge. Okay? Your father, of course, is the perfect righteous judge and loving father and everything. But nevertheless, 
Pray like that. Keep nagging him and nagging him and nagging him just like that woman did to that unrighteous judge. And keep, uh, keep doing that. And so this is why it's given here by virtue of analogy. He says, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for His elect? Just on a matter of proportion, how much more will God be willing to do what's right? Infinitely more. For His elect who cry to Him day and night, will He delay long over them? I tell you, He'll bring about justice for them quickly. Okay? Just with a caveat that when God says quickly, that could be 2,000 years later. Okay? Behold, I come quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Will He find faith on the earth? I think the, the, the bottom line point being made in the book of Job is that you may never get the answer. <laughs> you might pray for 41 chapters and then finally in chapter 42 say, I don't need the answer. As long as God knows what He's doing, I don't need to know who, what, where, when, why, and how. I just need to, to love God and keep trusting. And so if I never get the answer, that's fine. And uh, if He delays, if He's testing our faith, if He's strengthening us, that's fine. And, uh, and different things. And I've, I think I've told the story before. I know a woman that was married uh, as a teenager and she married an unbeliever. She should have known better, but she married an unbeliever. She was a believer. And she prayed for him. She prayed for him. She prayed for him. They were teenagers when they got married. She kept praying for him and her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. At the time I knew her, she was in her 70s. That was when I left home 20 years ago, and then in her 80s, into her 90s. Okay? And um, I think, if I heard the story correctly, that he did come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ over the age of 90 before he passed away. But how long do these prayers take? Okay? And uh, the fact is, though, how strong did she become in her prayer life for those decades, those constant decades of prayer on behalf of her unbelieving husband? And so uh, when I left home and joined the army and, and I, get a, I get a birthday card in boot camp and I'm thinking, and, and she handwrites it and she explains how she's praying for me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she's praying for me. That, that, that means a lot. See. Anyway. She's still alive, by the way. She just turned 100 and saw a picture of her, and it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. So, um, yeah, this unrighteous judge, he is going to provide because he loves you. And that, that illustration is an illustration. How about John 14? John 14. And... Um, now there's a sequence here from John 14 to John 15 to John 16 to John 17. And in this sequence we have prayer applications and they seem to build on the previous applications. And so I think a lot of Christians jump on, you know, they, they want to fight, they want to pick a fight based on one verse, pretending like they don't know about that other verse. And then, you know, both verses are in our Bible. So these groups that are fighting over it, you know, about praying to the Father or praying to Jesus hey, back off, okay? Because I can prove biblically that it's okay to talk to Jesus, and I can prove biblically that it's okay to talk to the Father. And I realize that likely the bulk of our prayers are to the Father in the name of the Son, but that doesn't mean you're wrong to talk to the Son or even talk to the Holy Spirit for that matter. He's a person too. All three members of Trinity are persons, and you can speak to a person. 
And why would the bride not talk to her, her Lord with respect to us being the bride of Christ in, uh, in things there? So in John 14, he says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. So asking Jesus in his name, Jesus said he would do it. So that, in the Father, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so what might be some of the things I would ask of the Lord? See, well, what are the things the Lord's involved in? He's the head of the church. I, I think church things I should be asking the Lord about. I think if there's gifts, ministries, and effects, the gifts are the Holy Spirit's empowerment, ministries are the Lord's leading, and the effects are the Father's working in and through us for His good pleasure. So if I have uh, ministry prayers, I may very well direct those to, to the Son instead of to the Father. Just because the Lord is the one head of the church. The Lord's the one that I'm yoked together with, I'm walking with. The Lord's the one that leads in ministry. The Lord's the one that opens doors no man can shut. And I'm told if you ask me anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Alright, so we have the prayer life there. But in the very next chapter then, Instead of asking the Son, he says, you know what? You can ask more than just me if you want. You can go straight to the Father. You can ask the Father. So now we've got twice the prayer power going for us. So John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And that's not name it and claim it prosperity theology because if you're abiding in Christ, abiding in His Word, then your thinking is going to be shaped by that word and you're not going to be asking for carnal things. You're going to be asking for the things that are in His will. Same chapter down to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. So in the previous chapter we saw we can ask the Son. Here we find out we can ask the Father. And we don't have to fight on an either-or kind of thing. It's both and. We can ask the Son, you can ask the Father, ask them both. Chapter 16. Verse 23, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. And uh, in that day, um, we've got... uh, He's talking about the death and resurrection and some of the hardships the disciples are going to go through. And, um, you know, so what was their prayer life like when he was in the grave? Well, they still had the Father available. Go ask him. All right. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. And so we have the prayer there. I'm out of time, but when you look at John 17, it's, uh, it's curious, I put an asterisk by it, John 17 verse 1 and following, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And uh, I'm going to have to let you go here. But read through this chapter, and as you read through this chapter, you find one of the most powerful prayers anywhere in the canon of Scripture. Anywhere from Genesis to Revelation, 
this chapter here is, is, this is the real Lord's Prayer. This is His high priestly prayer to God the Father before He goes to the cross. And you want to know something hilarious? Prosuke, deesis, eucharistia, itema, all those nouns and all those verbs, none of them are in this chapter. <laughs> none. Zero. There's not a prayer word in this chapter. But he's looking to his father. He lifts up his eyes. There's an idiom. Lifting up his eyes, he said. That's what prayer is. It's talking to God. It's talking to your father who loves you. And that's what he's doing here in this chapter. All right. So that's Jesus teaching. We'll come back on Sunday and uh, we'll go to the book of James. We'll go to Paul. We'll go to John. And uh, that will complete our New Testament survey on prayer. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the access that we have. Father, we don't need uh, to go to some Levites or some priests or to bring a goat. And uh, Father, we, we can pray to you right here, right now, all day, every day. Father, we have access because we ourselves are believer priests. And uh, through our Savior, we have access to you and uh, at any time, anywhere. So I thank you for that, Father. I pray that you would open our eyes to this reality. Also increase our capacity to worship and be blessed. And to uh, not only be blessed, but to bless you as we bless you in our prayers. So Father, teach us how these things work so that we can be more adult and less childish in our prayer life. So that we can pray for more than just the gimme, gimme, gimme prayers. And we can fellowship with you because our fellowship is with you and with your son. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.